Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Stefania Caponia, Booktopia's non-fiction category manager. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Campbell Walker, who's also better known as Struthless. Amongst many other things, Campbell is an illustrator, an animator, a content creator and writer for a massively successful YouTube channel and podcast. And he's now also the author of a new guide for mental clarity, Your Head is a Houseboat. Hi, Cam. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Stefania. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you're very welcome. I was really intrigued by this book. It was the first book that I started a couple of months ago. It was the first book that someone pointed out to me. Um, I was intrigued by the concept. So with the name, the, the metaphor and the idea of your head being a houseboat. It came from sort of doing my own research into what's going on in our heads and what was going on in my head specifically. So after, I guess, a period of therapy, I found that the easiest way for me to remember all the lessons that my therapist was trying to teach me um, was to put them into actionable metaphors. And I started compiling all these notes, and this is pre-book, of ways that I could understand brain function through these bizarre, whimsical metaphors. And when it came time to write the book, it seemed that all of these metaphors had a very common theme, and that is that they all sort of took place in this weird, moving vehicle that you could go inside that was sort of on what substance could be described as a river or an ocean. And I was like, oh, hang on. I think if I call this a houseboat, I could probably make all my metaphors fit and take us through a big journey. So that's where it came from. So is that, I've done a little bit of Jungian stuff through art school. Mm. Um, So were the archetypes in Jung a little bit of a catalyst for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a little bit from everywhere. So there was archetypes from Jung. There was other ones from uh, developmental psychology and other ones from CBT as well. I think CBT was probably the main guiding principles um, in terms of therapy-based principles. So what's CBT? Cognitive behavioural therapy. And the, the main idea behind it is that you are not your thoughts and your thoughts are something that you can non-judgmentally observe and that you can separate yourself from them. Okay. So now in, um, in the book, mm. it's not just the metaphor of the houseboat. You've also got a whole list of characters yeah. so there's the five bosses the grumpy sock puppets yeah preloaders yeah and the zoo i'm sure that there's a whole heap of others but can you briefly tell us who some of these characters are absolutely and, and how they mess with our heads completely so i'll take you through the five bosses because that's they're, they're five of my favorite characters that you might find so at the helm of this houseboat which sometimes appears as a house ship with a helm and a mast uh what you'll find is that when you go to steer that there are five bureaucratic somewhat nitpicking bosses who are each commanding orders you at once and what this represents is our wants and needs and our desires in life the things that we that we want and, and the places that we're going and what drives us there And so by having these five bosses, what it allows us to do is separate the various parts of our desires. So for example, we've got one boss who's called Selma the Sensible and she is sensible, you know, her her dream for you when she's telling you where to steer your houseboat is she's like, all right, we need to make enough money for rent. We need groceries and we need a head over your roof. All right, got it. Yep. All right, cool. She is in charge. Then we have another guy who sort of disagrees with Selma the Sensible. His name is Luca the Liver and he's like, dude, you know, it'd be a mad idea right now. 
slack lining and a stand-up paddleboard. You should spend all your money on jet ski lessons because that is going to make for an amazing afternoon. But Selma doesn't like this. And she's like, no, no, we need to save that money. So those are two bosses. And they're, you know, we, we might find a bit of conflict in them, which is why we might have conflict in ourselves. The other bosses that we can come across is Frey the Friendly, who's like, whatever you're doing, as long as we're with people, it's going to be okay. So she is the kind of boss who might uh, encourage you to stay in a job a little bit longer than you want because you like the people that you work with. But then there is another boss, a guy called Aziz the Ambitious. And he's the one who's like, no, 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 man, go for the rich job, go for the fame job, go for the status job. And then we've got finally the fifth boss, Gilda the Giver. And she's like, who cares what we're doing as long as it impacts the earth and makes the world a better <laughs> And so these five bosses will find uh, our wants and needs at odds with each other and there are life paths which will satisfy more of them than others but ultimately what it comes down to is no matter where you are going no matter where your houseboat is steering it will always be a compromise and that's what that chapter's about yeah i can identify with all those bosses <laughs> <laughs> who's got the loudest voice for you oh you know i i went traveling through europe and i think the two loudest bosses were um Run them through me again. So it was the sensible. So you got, yeah, you, you got the sensible one. You've got the one who's all about the lifestyle and all about living in the moment. Yes. So I was fluctuating between the two because I wasn't <laughs> working at the time. And I would go, oh, my God, I need to spend all my money because this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And then I'd go, but I'm going to get <laughs> home and I won't have any money left. And so I'd, I'd go one day where I was just eating a banana Mm. Um, and then another day where I'd go and go to a five-star restaurant. So it's <laughs> like the two, the two extremes. Well, <laughs> Jacqueline Hyde, but for splurging and saving. Yeah, right. <laughs> savings. Because I went, this is, you know, I travelled for quite a few months, mm. nine months. Wow. Um, and I, yes. You anyway, make a baby, so, that's crazy. <laughs> it's a long, a long story. That's bomb. <laughs> how, how that happened. Um, yeah, so it was, it was an opportunity and I kept thinking this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to have this money to be able to do it. But yeah, and so I think most people go through those stages in their lives where they're, they're conflicting. So yeah, I really loved that chapter. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, okay, I want to touch a little bit on Struthless. Mm. Okay, so most people online will know you as that persona. How did that come about? Like, where does that name come from? And when did you start your, your content online? Yeah, uh, the name is just a really simple portmanteau. I wish there was a cooler story about, uh, around it. Like I fell down some stairs and saw it, you know, written on the stairs as my head bled out. And then I woke up in, a, in an amazing state with a revelation. But no, it was just me smashing words together. Um, and I liked the words and originally I was like, that would be a lovely name for a clothing brand. And so I started posting online about five years ago and I was like, I'll just post some designs that I, and I'll try to get better at drawing. And then over time I got really into the idea of posting comics and then the comics sort of molded, uh, what do you say? Like, uh, found their way into being more complicated comics and then videos. And then it all just sort of evolved over the course of five years. And the same with the book, so it evolved out of out yeah. of Yeah, the book came, I guess, I, like when I first started drawing, I think my comics were quite cynical and, you know, it was fun. Like there's a lot of fun to be had when you're being cynical, but it's usually at someone's expense, like, ha-ha, you're trying. <laughs> um, but as I aged, I think that cynicism just kind of wore off me and I was like, well, what can I actually do now that I've started to build something that looks like a platform? 
And I don't know, the work that I thought was important was the work that I'd done on myself, which was all about mental clarity and trying to make your head as nice of a place to live as possible, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, wait till you get to the grumpy old man stage. <laughs> get off my I lawn, went, kids. Right. I went through the I went through the cynical and the and the less mm. cynical, and now I'm at the grumpy old lady stage. It's a horseshoe. We just come <laughs> back that way. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so in your book, you describe that these days are a weird time to be alive with so much input. Yeah. So can you explain what you mean by input? What I mean by input is the amount of stuff that we have to deal with. And this is uh, pretty well documented by yeah, all, all sorts of research. But basically, it's the fact that us as people living in 2021, in one day, we will consume more data than our ancestors would in their lifetime. And this is through phones, this is through advertising, this is through the 4,000 messages that we might see around the home. And this is through the 34 gigabytes of data that we are putting into our head every single day on top of the pressure that modern living already has, which is, you know, the pressure to, I think I've got it in the book, but to be a constantly loving partner, you know, amazing parent, patient monopoly player, things like that. <laughs> so between the amount of new data that goes into our heads, thanks to technology, between the pressure that's upon us, between all sorts of advertisers just vying for our attention constantly. I don't know. It's, it is, there's a lot of input. There's more input than humans are built for. And I truly believe that in time, we'll see this as almost like an asbestos period where humans right now are probably the canaries in the coal mine for testing how much data we should consume. But right now it's up to us to kind of manage that. So you, you actually list some um, stats so I'm going to read them out because it's a bit, it's freaked me out. It's a bit dystopic, isn't it? Yeah. So on a typical day, we'll send out 500 million tweets, 294 billion emails. With a B. Billion. Yeah, I get lots of them in my inbox. <laughs> I'm about half of that, yeah. 95 million Instagram posts and 82 years worth of YouTube videos. That's daily. Yeah, it's crazy. That's just insane, right? Like a Cambrian explosion of data. Oh, my God. So how do you switch off from all of this when your work is involved in creating this content? Yeah, absolutely. So I am definitely vulnerable to screen addiction. Um, I, I mean, I grew up with computers, you know, they were everywhere. And now I've got a smartphone and my work is very much through that smartphone. Um, so... Yeah, it's something that I definitely have to look out for. One of the best things, and this is going to sound like the simplest life hack, but I assure you it has so much power and I've only just started doing it, but literally turning off my phone. I always kind of like turned my nose up when people are like, dude, you just got to turn your phone off. I'm like, oh, it's kind of condescending, man. But then I started doing it and I was like, oh, oh, you can't get me. You can't get me, Zuckerberg. <laughs> not when I'm <laughs> not when my phone's off. And it's just, I don't know, it's made my world a whole lot nicer. Other kind of basic stuff I do, I, I leave my phone on grayscale because that's meant to reduce the addicting properties um, that it has on your head. So that's a big well, one. What that do I'm you doing. mean by grayscale? Um, switch off the colour. Yeah. Yeah, oh, literally. So um, I'll show you what I mean. So like when I was a kid and used to watch black and white TV. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's, my, that's my phone. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And so I've got like a toggle switch down the bottom. So, yeah, you can see that it goes on oh, yes, colour. Okay. Oh, yes, okay. But, yeah. And it's less addictive. Yeah. 
Yeah. But for people listening, yeah, sorry, that's not a visual. Uh, visual. Yes. Great for the podcast medium. That's right. Yes, Next the we'll do Friday of the week. Up. Yeah. No. yeah. Um, okay, so speaking of social media, it's been some of the worst and best things that have happened for young people's <laughs> mental health. Right? So yeah. definitely it's been some of the worst things, but it's also been a really positive thing for mental health. So mm. can you maybe touch on some of the things that you see as being positive? Yeah, I think one of my favourite things about the way that mental health is discussed, particularly in young people and particularly online, is that in the same breath that somebody will tell you what they ate for breakfast, they'll tell you that they had a panic attack and there's no tonal shift. They're like, oh, yeah, I had some cereal, had like this big anxiety attack and panic for a while and then, um, yeah, went to work. Um, oh, man, there's a new movie coming out. And, <laughs> and I love the absolute destigmatization of it. And I think the more we... The word's a bit overused, but normalise um, diverse mental health uh, conditions and mental health states within all of us. I think the the easier it is to talk about, and the easier it is to talk about, the less alone we feel, and the more we start to uh, collectively heal. So, I think social media can get a pat on the back for once for that one. It also gives us access to services. Yes, absolutely. when I was in my twenties, we didn't have the internet. Um, we did hardly had computers. Um, <laughs> so having access to that kind of information was really hard um, and there was a lot of stigma around it. So it's, it's, I find it's great that you, with, with social media, it's, it's made it a lot more, like you say, normal. When did, um, when did you notice it start to change the conversation? Um, well, the past 10 years, I'd yeah. say the last decade, when What's social media sort of... Yeah. yeah, because before that, it was really you had to know someone. You had to ask. The, you needed to know who to talk to. Um, so there was phone services that you could ring. Um, but again, the, I I picked up the phone and rang when I was in my twenties. But the anxiety when I did that, I felt like it wasn't a normal thing to do. I I felt like I was. Um, an outsider and it was a really like oh, I must be crazy if I'm doing this oh, whereas oh, now ironic it's, effect. yes it wasn't a, it wasn't a, an easy thing to do um, I realized that I was actually a strong person for doing it incredible but at that time people who asked for help weren't necessarily considered strong people whereas I think now it's that stigma's um, removed a little bit from it which brings me to Osha mm. So Osha, there's <laughs> the segue. Um, Osha put a, um, there's a quote from him on, on the cover of your book. Mm -hmm. um, and he's been speaking quite openly recently about his own mental health issues. He's done a documentary, he's in the media. Um, so it's really great that all these, um, especially men in the, in, um, in the media are coming out and, and speaking about their mental health issues. So what else do you think needs to happen to destigmatize mental health? That's a really good question. I don't know if I have all the answers. I might have some suggestions. Yes. <laughs> uh, just, just before I try to solve the mental health problems. <laughs> oh, it would be great if we could. <laughs> oh, I know. Could you imagine? Um, I, I think that we like, I mean, this is, a very popular thought, but I do think that there needs to be more funding into one-on-one uh, yeah. -on -one mental health care workers, um, particularly 
so something that happened to me when I was 20, I got sectioned, which was, uh, so sectioned, if people don't know, is where you get taken against your will and you get put in a mental health facility, like a psych ward. And it was ironically one of the most traumatizing experiences of my life. So what happens when you do get sectioned or what happens, what happened when I did get sectioned then is they ask you if we let you, so let's say you go to like a headspace or a free service or a lifeline or even just a GP and they say, all right, if I let you go today, can I, can you guarantee that you won't kill yourself? Something along the lines of those questions. And uh, I couldn't guarantee that. So I said, no. And they said, all right, so we're going to have to take you to the emergency ward at the hospital. And I'm like, all right, um, this all sounds like a lot. And they're like, sorry, it's protocol. We've got to do this. Otherwise the suicides like could be argued as their liability. So I went to the emergency ward and doctors, you know, it's that rotating door of nurses all coming to you and just saying, you know, asking you questions, asking you similar questions, different questions. What's your name? What's your date of birth? That sort of stuff. Until ultimately I would have said the same thing and it didn't really matter what I said at this point, but I ended up getting sectioned and sent to a psych ward. And for a person who was already feeling isolated and alienated from the mm. world, I was then being marched through all these very big concrete doors underground. They took my shoelaces from me. They like strapped me into a bed. It was horrible. The, all the, uh, the other people there, there were a lot of um, people who bully you in a psych ward. That's kind of bizarre. There's people who kind of come around and try to say awful things to you. So I think there's a lot of that going on. And at the end of the day, if you want to get out, you have to prove your sanity which is a, another really isolating experience. So I think improving those systems, the, particularly because we have a you know, relatively high suicide rate in this country. So making sure that we have systems that can catch people so we don't lose the 2,000 people that we lose every year. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a really intense experience. So, um, mm. so tell me, how did, what ended up happening after that? Did you... Yeah. Um, after that, I ended up well, proving my sanity as yeah. one does and just going back to my normal life, which was a strange experience. And there was no follow-up questions or anything like that. It was just how quickly can we make sure this person doesn't kill himself? And I just went back to living my life. That was it. And I mean, I developed a pretty strong and I think justifiable distrust for the mental health system in New South Wales, which I managed to kind of question and chalk it up to anecdotal evidence about eight years later and realized that I was probably wrong about that. But yeah, I would say, you know, I know from talking to lots of people um, and from looking at the data that that experience is common in young people and that it sadly is still, you know, 10 years later, a problem that hasn't been solved. So if you'd had more one-on-one -on -one help, you wouldn't have gotten to that point, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's one thing, which is the cure. And then there's obviously prevention as well, which is having conversations like this, make it, make it, make their way into the classroom, into schools yes. as early as possible and just having more dialogue around it, which I think like you've noted um, between your twenties and people who are in their twenties now, or even younger, like social media is one thing that is making that go faster. Yeah, but, for teenagers, yes. Yeah, but it's also one thing that's exacerbating the issues. So just having more conversations in schools is preventative as well. So a, a big part of your book is the journaling. Yes, yes. So how did that help you with your journey? Yeah, so I'll tell you about the first time I ever journaled because um, that's 
uh, which I think I, I put a paragraph or two in the book about it, but I was 19 and I, I mean, I was, I was a bit of a rat bag kid. Like I had a pretty gnarly amphetamine addiction um, and I was just trying to get over it. And so I sort of, I sent myself to New Zealand where my family lives and I was like, all right, there are no drugs here. So I'm going to be here. And Oh God, what can I do? What can I do if there aren't any drugs? Oh no. Oh no. So I pulled out my laptop and I'm like, I guess I've got a lot of thoughts. What happens if I just try type them out at the speed I'm having them? And so that's exactly what I did. And as I typed them out, there was this, it almost felt like, you know, on a computer where you drag something to, to the trash and then you go empty trash and there's like a sense of relief in you. It kind I took of, my email inbox. Yes, yes, exactly. When you're like inbox zero, here we go. I'm on fire, Stefania. Uh, yeah, it, it, it had that sort of sensation where I was like, oh, Oh, here's a here's a little mental health it's hack. So much lighter. <laughs> yeah, and that lasted for a, a whopping two days before the thoughts came back, and I was like, "All right, maybe this is going to be going to have to be an ongoing practice." And I don't know, eleven years later of constantly journaling and finding new ways to guided to to perform guided journaling, which is where you ask yourself a specific yeah. question in the hopes of finding an answer that you've not yet articulated. I think. Um, yeah, it, I couldn't write a book about mental clarity without including a journaling section at the end of every chapter. Now, I, I love the idea of journaling. I've got stacks of notebooks that I've collected over the years and pens. I'm a bit of a stationary junkie. Oh, yeah. me both, um, yeah. <laughs> but mind you, all those notebooks, honestly, they're all still empty. Ooh, what because, a <laughs> I think my thing is that the pages are so beautiful and clean. Oh. I'm worried about messing them up. Oh, no, um, no, so with your impure thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> so, I don't know where that comes from. So I end up scribbling on bits of paper rather than the notebook. So what advice would you give me and people mm -hmm. like me to get started? I'd say uh, if you've got a perfect notebook and you're worried that your, your sinning head is going to somehow... <laughs> Elliot, uh, yeah, I, I completely relate to this. I mean, it's, it's kind of a side effect of perfectionism, which I'd say yeah. is a symptom of quite a few things. But what <laughs> I would do before you start is firstly mark the book in some way. So you could either rip out a page or you could scribble on the first page, make it imperfect from the get. And this is something that I use in my everyday life where for, like, I'll try make things that aren't perfect because I mean, perfectionism is a plague for I think a lot of us. So making sure that that book, you know, just taking it down a peg. You know, it should be lucky to have your thoughts. <laughs> Not the other way around. I'm going to try that. <laughs> Good on you. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I went traveling, going back to my travel um, anecdote, I had mm. this beautiful leather bound journal that someone gave me. Mm. And again, I was too scared to write in it. So I bought a really cheap, <laughs> nasty exercise book, kids' exercise book. And it's full of so many things in there. Um, no, that no, I don't necessarily show people. <laughs> no coincidence. I mean, I personally buy the, like, as, like, it's very intentional. I buy the cheapest exercise books I can to journal in. I, um, yeah, just because I find it easier and, yeah. you know, yeah, cheap <laughs> lowbrow. <laughs> um, okay, so we've touched a little bit on age. Um, yep. Recently you posted about how you turned 30 and you were glad to see the back of your 20s. Um, can I just say, I've had exactly the same experience. Oh, thank I was God. so glad to have seen the end of my, my 20s. Now, mm. not so much. Oh, yeah. What am I going to go back? Um, like a holiday. But, you know? yeah. <laughs> that's right. But I think a lot of people have that same 
sensation. They just don't really talk about it. Mm. So can you maybe, for the people listening who haven't seen the, the clip, can you explain what you meant about being happy to see the back of your 20s? Yeah, I think um, going into my 20s, like so many people, um, and this is also a problem of how much data is fired at our heads, there is, or at least I experienced a... Uh, th this idea that my 20s would be this whirlwind of, you know, love, adventure, partying, all of, the, all of the good stuff that friends and ads, Heineken ads tell you that it will be. And when you get there, you realise, yeah, it's probably like 30% that and 70% freaking out and being broke. Um, and knowing, realising that the, the majority of it be, is really, really difficult and that you're sort of just a naive child in the adult world trying to make your way, I think... The cool thing about doing it is once it's done, it is done. And you do have that chunk, which is nicely segmented by the way that we count in base 10 to reflect on. And it's really nice. Um, and so moving into my thirties and I know it's nominal, but it sort of, it closed a door and I was like, all right, I can see this whole thing as a contained system. And it, I don't know, it felt like a new chapter, which I know is just me like letting myself believe that, but it was nice. Yeah, well, I think most people feel that way. That, you yeah, know, when I agree it, with you. birthdays that are on a decade, it's like, okay, that's that chapter of my life. And oh. let me tell you that the preceding chapters, <laughs> <laughs> they are, yeah, those problems are still there. I think the difference is how you view them. So I think as you get, well, my experience has been as I've gotten older, I don't care so much what people think. I love that. And I, I think that. that is what is liberating, right? So you put more importance on what you want rather than what other people think of you. So that was liberating for me. What um, age did you find you had a, a bigger jump than usual in terms of your like personal development? Well, look, my personal development and all, I think I was around your age, like in my late 20s and 30s when I did most of the intense stuff. Because mm. I think that's when I think a lot of people go through it. Mm. Um, I was just really lucky that even though I wasn't in an era where it was um, the norm, I reached out and, and, and spoke to people. But I did it through, um, I joined an astrology group. Oh, totally, totally. I, I did a bit of astrology before it was really popular. So yeah. I did astrology and tarot and I did, so that's where the Jungian thing comes in um, and I did dream work. So, yeah, it was like you, I was working on my life in metaphors because I had a lot of those why questions, but why, but why? Um, and so I changed the conversation by doing it that way and I had all these people, you know, we were having really profound conversations that um, I wasn't having when I was going to nightclubs and hanging out with my friends. And they didn't really want to hear that stuff. You know, people don't, you, when you catch up with your friends, you don't necessarily want to talk about your mental health problems. So having an outlet for it was really, was really good. So I think that really helped. But um, mm. yeah, but as I got older, it's like now I don't care that I'm, that I'm still renting. I don't care that I'm not married and I don't have kids. But when I was in my 20s, I thought I need to be married. I need to have kids. I need to have a house because all the people I went to school with are doing that. So totally, totally. Right? And we didn't have social media. 
So <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine how much worse it would be for teenagers and 20-year-olds these days that are comparing themselves to this amazing life that people are having. And the best to of the best. The best <laughs> of the best, which isn't real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, it, it like, you know, just these people posting their curated lives and me being like, yeah, well, true. I'm not that. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Mm. Um, now, your sister Beth is a yeah. counsellor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how influential was she in, um, in starting your mental health journey? Oh, extraordinarily, and, yeah. And has she helped you a lot with your book? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. My sister is such a strong and amazing person she is oh amazing yeah I, I couldn't speak more highly of her if I tried so yeah we're quite close in age we're born a year apart um nearly Irish twins not quite um <laughs> my sister and I are the same so oh yeah, yeah we know which buttons to push in each other yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so, so do we and um now that we're a bit older we we avoid those buttons thank god but she's yeah, all... don't worry. We, we, my sister and I still push ours. We still yeah. have, have roaring arguments, but that's okay. We yeah. still love each other. It's like a sport <laughs> with siblings, you know? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Me and my brother are still in that phase. <laughs> yeah, we all know each other forever. But um, yeah, my sister. So she she's had an interesting life. Um, a bit like you, I think um, part of her understanding of metacognition came through uh, what, what I'd call like the, the new age genre. Yeah. Um, and so that was sort of her toe in the water before she fully dove into counselling. And she's had, um, I mean, people who've just overcome stuff. She's just one of those people who I think have had more shit thrown at her than most. And the way that she's managed to process things like grief and trauma and love and everything, I've just found inspiring. And then for her to not only process her own stuff, but to then turn outward and say, well, I want to help people in a one-on-one -on -one capacity because I feel like this is what's missing in counselling and this is what I could bring to counselling is just wild. And she still has time to talk to me and energy and, and I love it. And, you know, a conversation, anytime I call her, like, it'll just turn into this four-hour huge chat where we un end up unpacking everything and I don't know, it's lovely. And so it's honestly it's like swimming at a beach something that just afterwards you'd never regret it and you feel alive again talking to her so that's great. i had that with my mum yeah um sorry that you said that in past tense yes no my mum passed away a few I'm years so sorry ago. to hear that yeah. no, that's okay but um yeah and she was she was the one who steered me towards the astrology and the tarot that was her thing as well so i remember growing up as kids the first thing when we'd get out of bed was what did you dream last night <laughs> so we've always had those sorts of conversations yeah <laughs> yeah my grandpa was this big like he's from the hippie age and yeah he was exactly like that he'd like wake up at the sunrise and do yoga and then you wake up and he'd be like hi what did you dream yeah. and he's like crazy jazz man <laughs> Um, so what would you like people to take from, from this book? I think what I want is for somebody to read this book and enjoy looking at their head. So for me, I think a lot of people might feel like looking at their head is something that they have to do. Like you have to do the dishes or you have to vacuum. But I think what I want is people to want to look at their head. And I think that's why I made it kind of look, I guess, visually like a children's book. So you're in this play state and why I filled it out and wrote it 
in a way which I hopefully, which hopefully translates as humor so that people can have a laugh and really enjoy it. So if there's any way that I can somehow facilitate non-judgmental introspection in anybody, oh man, I'll die a happy man. I think it would translate really well for schools as well. So Thanks. Yeah, a couple, couple of people at Heidi Grant have said the same thing. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> awesome. Okay. And what are, you, what are you looking to work on next? Um, at the moment, I'm working, say, I set up, me and a friend of mine, um, slash longstanding work buddy, um, built, uh, we started an animation studio last year, and we've kind of picked up a few, like, decent-sized clients, and we've worked for, I don't know, a couple of dream clients as well in the past year. So, yeah, we're now working on an animated series, which I am um, really excited about exploring oh. fiction. So, yeah, that. Great. Look forward to seeing it. So, Thank we've you. reached our half our half hour mark so unfortunately we've got to end here I, I could keep talking to you for hours um so thanks so much for joining us today oh, for all so our listeners at home i hope you've been as riveted as i have um you can pick up your copy of your head is a houseboat from your local bookstore or you can order online from booktopia thank you again for listening and never stop reading Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au